This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, welcome to Health Check. I'm Joyce Teo, a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. So research has shown that our gut and brain actually communicate with each other. There is growing interest in research on this close connection. So in today's episode, we will look at this link between the gut and the brain and why some cases of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS can be treated with a holistic approach that involves a psychologist. So today I've invited a gastroenterologist from the Singapore General Hospital, his Dr. Andrew Ong, who will tell us about the way he treats his patients with complex gastrointestinal issues. He runs a weekly IBS clinic at the hospital with a psychologist, Michelle Shi, that he had started back in 2019. It is the only clinic in Singapore where you can go to the same place to see the specialist or the psychologist. And interestingly, Dr. Ong also hosts the SGH Guts and Glory podcast on gastrointestinal topics. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Health Check. Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. So today we're going to talk about IBS and the link between gut health and mental health. So I'm very excited to find out more about the link. The gut has been called the second brain or the little brain. So can you start by telling us you know, about that link and how is that possible? Thanks for that question, Joyce. What people may not understand is that when you are a fetus and you're growing inside your mom's womb, the gut and the brain are already very closely linked. So the nerves from the gut actually originate from the same area that the nerves from the brain originate from. So what that means is that the neurotransmitters or these substances that communicate across nerves are actually the same within the brain and the gut. This is one of the reasons why when we use medications like antidepressants to treat pain in abdominal pain, there's actually a biological basis to it. So the brain and the gut are extremely closely linked to one another to the point that I do not think there's any other organs within the body that has as much nerves as the gut outside of the brain and the spinal cord. But which is why at your IBS clinic, you have a psychologist there as well, right? It's because we strongly believe that in order to approach a patient holistically, you need to think of the human or the person as an integration of three different systems, right? There's the biological system, there's the psychological system, and there's a social situation. So for example, you may have a biological problem. There may be an issue with the functioning of your nerves, but you do have a psychological issue in the sense that you've been suffering with the condition for so long that you have certain coping mechanisms towards that pain. And the social part is important because how you grew up in a specific culture will determine how you would react to a certain illness. So when you approach a patient just solely on the biological basis, you are thinking over simplistically that you can treat the patient with a medication. But if you do not, do not address the psychological state of the patient nor the social situation, then you will not be able to treat the patient holistically. And I think that's the basis of why we run our clinic this way in, in SGH. I see, that's interesting. So maybe for most people, I think we think of IBS and maybe just having diarrhea, constipation, bloating. So can you maybe tell us more about what IBS is? IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, as it's called, it's chronic gastrointestinal condition. So that means it's something that happens for a long time. It's not something that comes and goes, diarrhea that you have after a food poisoning episode. And irritable bowel syndrome is very common. So I think in the world, maybe about 10% of the population has it. And I think from the data from post-COVID patients, it seems to be one of the common conditions that follow COVID as well. So there is going to be an avalanche of cases coming our way with regards to irritable bowel syndrome. And many people struggle with it because it's one of those diseases where you don't have 
a way to prove that it exists, right? So you don't have a scan to show that something is wrong. You don't have a blood test to say that something is wrong. And you just go by the patient's symptoms. But yet, this is something that eludes many doctors. It confuses many patients because I think many people just have a poor understanding of what this condition is. But it is a very real problem. It affects many people and it affects their lives greatly. But it's so common that people might just head to a GP to solve the problem. The fortunate thing about many conditions is you have a different spectrum of severities, right? So for irritable bowel syndrome, the mild cases, often our primary care colleagues do a fantastic job of treating these patients. But once you reach a certain level of severity, and we determine severity not just by the symptoms, but the way it impacts their life. So if this patient is taking multiple days of sick leave, they are not able to function at work because of their pain, or they are just having a lot of psychological issues because of the pain, like they develop anxiety or develop depression because of the pain, those are markers of severity to us. And I think once it reaches that stage, more has to be done than what they are currently receiving in primary care. I see. But also at the weekly clinic, you deal with the more complex cases. So usually the patients that we see in this clinic, patients that are referred from multiple sources, whether in public or private hospitals, often these are patients who have been seen by somebody, usually even seen by a specialist, and they their condition is managed suboptimally and therefore they, they come to our clinic seeking either a second opinion or an escalation of care. Okay, so these patients that you mentioned, the ones with complex cases, do they fit into a certain age group or what kind of patients are they? We tend to see more patients in the younger population. I'm talking about working adults, so people in their 20s all the way to in their 40s. And we tend to see a higher proportion of females and that fits with the demographics of IBS around the world. But we cannot discount the fact that we do see a lot of elderly patients in our clinic as well. And often these elderly patients have been suffering for many years. They're just very stoic about it and they have probably kept it at bay for many years. And now it's starting to become a bit unmanageable and then they come in. So how do you typically help them when they come in? The first step is to actually get the patient to understand what is the condition all about. Because many patients come to our clinic and they tell us that no doctor has actually explained to them what they have. And no doctor has ever advised them on what the treatment options are. So what they've usually been told is that this is all stress-related or it's all in their mind and that all the scans and all their scopes have come back negative. So that's the usual kind of patient that we get. And we spend a lot of time in, in initial clinic deconstructing a lot of the stigma that they've received. Because the patients come in and every patient wants a dignified diagnosis. They want to know that something is wrong, that they can explain and that you actually believe what they're saying. So the moment that we are able to clinch a diagnosis, usually based on their history, we will spend a lot of time educating them about what exactly is going on. So we tell them this is a gut issue. This is not an issue with their mind. And that usually is a very important first step because patients start to build rapport with us when they understand that we actually believe them. And I truly believe them because I see these conditions day in, day out. And then we really go on to explain what exactly is going on in their body. And we use exact examples that they tell us. So if they tell us they are struggling with drinking milk, I will explain to them clearly why they are struggling with drinking milk. I think once the patient understands what's wrong with them, then you can start exploring ways to treat them better. And then we introduce the concepts of psychology very early on because there is a lot of stigma in Asian society still about mental health issues and the link between the gut and the brain is not something that people accept readily. So we need to spend some time introducing it early so that 
the resistance for it will actually diminish with time. And we have to explain to them that the whole human entity doesn't exist in isolation, right? When you have symptoms, you find a way to try and talk about it within yourself, what's going on, how you cope with it. So all these things play a part in how we actually manage the patient. So you mentioned drinking milk. How is that linked to the brain then? There's this misconception that people, many people say they are lactose intolerant. To be honest, almost every Asian person I know does not absorb lactose because that's the way our genetic makeup is. But why do some patients develop symptoms and some don't? And some of the studies have shown that patients who develop symptoms, actually, it's not that they are not absorbing the milk well, because everyone who is from an Asian descent probably will not absorb the milk well. But it's because the nerves within their gut are so sensitive that they're picking up the stress that the milk is causing onto the intestine. So milk is a poorly absorbed sugar when you don't have the enzyme to digest it. So what happens is that it gets fermented inside the gut and it produces gases, it produces what we call short-chain fatty acids that are they pull water into your gut. So you get diarrhea, you get bloating. Those are your common symptoms with milk. And so the patients who are sensitive to begin with will develop symptoms to whatever they ingest. It's just that milk is one of the more common culprits. And so in this group of patients, most of the time they have a latent diagnosis of something like irritable bowel syndrome. So it's not lactose intolerant, which is the primary diagnosis. It's the irritable bowel syndrome that's driving the symptoms. I see. Okay. It's very common. I always hear that. So it's actually the other way around. Yeah. So at your clinic, it's called a weekly IBS clinic. Is that the only issue that you deal with? Or are there other gastrointestinal issues? So irritable bowel syndrome is the most common condition and is also the prototypical condition that we see in this clinic. But there is this entity called functional dyspepsia, which what many lay people will call gastric or gastritis. And it's probably easier to call it gastric anyways because functional dyspepsia is a mouthful, but it is also very common because we tend to eat a lot as Singaporeans and we tend to abuse our stomach in ways that we shouldn't. And therefore, many of us actually develop sensitivity of our stomach. And it's also known that many Asian patients that symptoms that appear to originate from the stomach actually is the colon that is giving you the issue of your large intestine. And therefore, you might have irritable bowel syndrome, even though your symptoms seem to be quite high up. So you're saying that you mean when people think that they have gastric, it's actually not gastric, it's IBS instead? Yes. To make things even more confusing, often you have both, right? Because your gut is just one long tube. And if you have sensitivity in your stomach, it's very high chance that you have sensitivity in your lower intestines, uh, in, in terms of your small and your large intestines. Many, it's, it gets very confusing at times for physicians to know exactly where the problem is. But overall, we know that it's an issue with the nerve sensitivity anyways. So it doesn't matter where the symptoms are originating from. I see. But for a patient, if I have an issue like that, then you know, what do I do? Because I won't even know that it's IBS, right? Yeah. So as a healthcare professional, when you're seeing these patients, I think what's important is to truly understand what's the dominant symptom. So many patients will be a bit different. Some will have abdominal pain as their main issue. Some will have diarrhea. Some will have constipation. Some will have bloating. So once we know where to target our focus on, then we know how to treat that symptom. Therefore, we always go by the predominant symptom rather than clinching a diagnosis. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Andrew Ong, a consultant gastroenterologist at the Singapore General Hospital. 
So maybe tell us more about your cleaning, how you treat the patients there, and when do the psychologists come in? Having a psychologist is very much a bonus to any physician because what a psychologist does differently from a psychiatrist is a psychiatrist deals mainly with mental health issues right, and can prescribe medications. But a psychologist is one who understands human behaviours and tries to change human behaviours to adapt to a situation. If we believe that an illness does not exist totally in a biological isolation, that means you have a psychological state that contributes to your manifestation of a disease, it's not surprising that a psychologist would be helpful because for a patient who has been struggling with a health issue for a long time, they will develop what we call inflexible thinking. So they might insist on doing scans, they might insist on doing certain things because they have convinced themselves that this is the way that they can improve their health or this is the way they can find out more about their condition. And this stems from healthcare professionals sometimes giving them wrong information, false reassurance, and I don't blame the patients for reacting that way. So where a psychologist comes in is that if I notice that there is a persistent, what we call a cognitive process, so something is going on in their mind that is controlling the way they behave. So for example, if a patient catastrophizes, right? so what this means is that they feel a symptom coming and they start to be so fearful of the symptom that they avoid the entire social situation that they are in. They run away to go and go home. They don't want to take the MRT and they, their quality of life is affected because of this. So something is wrong in the way they are perceiving their situation. And so I can treat them with medications, but I'm not going to change their mindset about their health just using medications alone. I need a psychologist to work with them to understand why they're thinking this way and how we can actually help them to overcome this fear of, of being in a social situation with which they might have their symptoms. And so you're treating the patient holistically because you're tackling the mind as well as tackling the biological problem. In this situation, it's anxiety, right? Some of them might have depression and or just maybe higher stress levels, right? So you don't actually treat the conditions. You treat it in relation to the IBS that they have. Yes, if you really want to be more purist about the whole situation, we're actually treating the patient because no two patients are the same. You realize that everyone's life situation is different. So you have to tailor your management plan towards the patient's life situation. So an example would be, if I have a patient who comes in with abdominal pain, right? And what I've noticed is that they develop these symptoms during the pandemic. And I found out that what had changed in the pandemic was the fact that they exercised less because they were not able to go out and they slept less because they're spending more time in their mobile devices watching Netflix, for example. And the patient themselves may not even link all the dots together. But I have built this narrative in my mind just based on talking to the patient. And so if I give them a medication, but I do not change their lifestyle, then nothing is going to change, right? So I had patients like that, where all we did was to send them for a program of regular exercise, as well as committing to sleeping better and sleeping more. And that actually took away their symptoms. So it wasn't the medication that did the deal. It was changing the lifestyle. And I think we underestimate the power of some of these things. Right, but it sounds like you need to spend more time with the patient at this clinic. Yes, we have to spend more time with the patient, but you also need to understand how to ask the right questions because asking the right questions will give you the answer half the time. And what I've done in the past is I actually studied talk show hosts for a while. So people like Larry King, Oprah Winfrey, Jimmy Fallon, I've watched their shows and I've asked myself, why is it that they are able to get such nice information from their interviewees? Is it an intentional thing? Because it seems to be unscripted. And I realized it was the power of the questions. If you ask the questions 
the right way at the right time. And if you listen to the patient such that you can chain a few of your questions together, then you will get a lot of useful information from the patient. You can be a journalist as well. <laughs> I wouldn't go as far as saying that, but it does help. Even when I was running my own podcast, just to understand the power of questions. So I just want to share an example. There was a study that looked at survivors of 911, right? And it was a very stressful situation for many of these survivors. And their brain structure and their hormone profile changed after the incident. So that was an acutely stressful situation. And that, in turn, led to them developing chronic abdominal pain issues. Right? And many studies have shown as well that people who went through adverse life events, so that means they have gone through sexual abuse, they have gone through separation of their parents at a young age, they develop chronic abdominal pain issues as well. So what the studies have shown is that your brain changes when you have, when you're acutely stressed. And that change in your brain will determine the way you perceive your pain signals coming in from your gut. And therefore, it's not surprising that many of these patients have developed abdominal pain issues. But they've been mistakenly labeled by their healthcare physicians as having their symptoms stress-induced. But perhaps what they had was a difficult life to begin with. And then their gut became sensitive because of those factors. And it wasn't their current situation that triggered all those issues to appear. So I think there's still a lot of a misunderstanding about this condition. So what are the cases like in your clinic? Are you, is it okay to talk about them? So I had this lady who came into my clinic with a constipation. And she's seen many doctors in the public hospitals and private hospitals. They've cycled her through many different laxatives and she wasn't improving. One of the first few things I did, obviously, was to talk to her to find out more about the, her current situation. But I also examined the muscles within the anus as well as the rectum just to make sure that the muscles were working properly because I also run the pelvic floor service at SGH so we actually deal with some of these issues and I noticed that she couldn't coordinate the muscles to push her stools out so that was a good find but and some doctors might have stopped at that and sent her for treatment but the question I asked myself was why did she develop this now and why did she come forward now when she probably had all these problems maybe since young and what I noticed from her history was that she was an athlete in school, right? She was working in a very stressful job, had a type A personality. And what I realized talking to her was the whole act of sitting in a toilet bowl to poop was a performance to her. And if she couldn't do it, she became anxious because she added the pressure on herself to perform. And it was so obvious in the way that she was describing to it because her body language showed when she was describing how frustrated she was. If I hadn't picked that up, I wouldn't be able to treat her holistically because what we had to do with her and the psychologist was to deconstruct some of her thinking processes. Why was it so important that she could poop? Why was it so important that she had to do this and prove to herself certain things? And what she realized as we worked with her was that she didn't have to do these things. Some of it was self-inflicted. Some of it was still difficult for her to let go. But eventually she got better because she herself understood that this wasn't a performance. This was just a normal thing that people do, right? So we corrected the, the ability to poop by sending her for physiotherapy. But at the same time, the psychological therapies helped as well. And she came off the medications. She actually need not take laxatives for as far as I remember when I last saw her. And I think that was a great success story. And we don't have such wonderful success stories for everyone. But this shows we are so quick to rush to give the patient a, a pill just to solve all their problems when you actually realize that the human body is so complex that 
the minds involved in many of the way our body function. And so we need to think of it holistically. Thanks for the example. That's good. Helps us understand this process and this link. So before we end, um, you know, you also host this podcast, right? Tell us a little bit more about it. What's your upcoming topic? So thanks, Joyce, for allowing me to advertise my own podcast. So I host a podcast called the Guts and Glory podcast with my two co-hosts, Dylan and Ching Han. Dylan and Ching Han are both internal medicine residents within Sing Health. I myself, as a gastroenterologist, I work with them and we create episodes to talk about gastroenterology topics. And so we made this podcast primarily for medical students during the pandemic because of the lack of teaching that they were all struggling with. We are doing an episode on diarrhea in someone with a compromised immune system. So it may sound very technical, but I think it's a useful episode for healthcare professionals. Right. So thank you for your time, Andrew. I thank you so much, Joyce, for inviting me. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.